Welcome to season seven of PIN South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, PIN South Africa board member, Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, PIN centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with Salma Al-Shahab, a PhD student, women's rights activist and academic. Salma Al-Shahab was recently sentenced to 34 years in prison based on treats in support of women's rights and for the respect of basic rights. It is the longest known prison sentence handed down against the peaceful activist for their free speech in Saudi Arabia. Al-Shahab is a dental hygienist and PhD student at Leeds University in the United Kingdom, where she was residing before her detention. She is married and the mother of two young children. She was arrested on 15 January 2021 while on holiday in Saudi Arabia and subjected to solitary confinement and lengthy sessions of questioning over a period of nine and a half months before being brought before the specialized criminal court. On 9 August 2022, the Specialized Criminal Court of Appeal sentenced Al-Shahab to 34 years in prison after a grossly unfair trial to be followed by a travel ban of the same length. The charges against her included, and I quote, supporting those who seek to disrupt the public order and publishing tweets that disrupt the public order, end quote. This is in connection with her posts on her account where she expressed support for prisoners of conscience the ruling is subject to appeal in the Supreme Court. Penn South Africa joins Penn International in calling on the Saudi authorities to overturn Salma Al-Shahab's conviction, release her from prison and release all others currently detained in the kingdom for the peaceful exercise of their fundamental rights. You can read more about the intricacies of her case in our show notes. In this second episode of our Black History season, Nosipom Gomezulu interviews Joel Cabrita about a groundbreaking book, Written Out, The Silencing of Regina Gelana Twala. They discuss Twala's life and work in South Africa and Eswatini, her writing and subversive politics in the context of systems of oppression. Joel reflects on her own positionality, ethics, the process of writing about Twala, and the hope that Twala's words finally find the audience she was denied in her lifetime. During the conversation, Joel mentions Atambile Masola and Makosasana Klaba's new book, Noni Jababu, A Stranger at Home. Listen out for episode 8 of this season, which features both these writers. Nosipom Gomezulu holds a PhD in social anthropology from the university currently known as Rhodes. Nosipo has worked as a lecturer at the University of Cape Town and is currently a lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand. She co-hosts the Academic Citizen podcast, was named the 2020 Mailing Guardian's Top 200 Young South Africans, and is a research fellow in science communication at Stellenbosch University. A lot of our educational imaginary around what everyday life during apartheid was, especially, you know, 1940s until the 60s, I struggle to imagine what an everyday life might have looked like. And to have access to letters, to photographs, to an ethnographer writing her life, but also writing the lives around her, is just such an incredible resource. Joel Cabrita is the Susan Ford Dorsey Director of the Center for African Studies and an Associate Professor of African History at Stanford University. She is also a Senior Research Associate in the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Johannesburg. Her work focuses on religion, gender, and the politics of knowledge production in Africa and globally. She's the author of Written Out, The Silencing of Regina Gelana Twala. Her other books include Text and Authority in the South African Nazareta Church, 
and the people Zion, Southern Africa, the United States, and a transatlantic faith healing movement. I think these stories of heroism and triumph can sort of be deceptive in that they encourage us to take our eye off the wall and instead of thinking about justice and improving things, we kind of celebrate these individuals who managed to beat the odds. Yes, those stories are amazing, but I'd much rather think about the structures that made their lives so difficult in the first place and what our responsibility is as scholars, intellectuals, activists, to do better for future generations. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Welcome to Penn South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. This is the second episode of season seven. I'm Nosipom Gomezulu, and I'm delighted to be talking with Professor Joel Cabrita. I'm in Johannesburg and Joel in Stanford, California. We're recording in our homes, so you might hear some ambient noise during the conversation, but you know, life does go on around us. Welcome, Joel. Thanks so much, Nasipo, and thank you so much to the Pan SA team for inviting me to be here. I'm really excited about this conversation and honored to be having it with you in particular. So thank you. <laughs> so your book, Written Out, The Silencing of Regina Gelana Twala, shares the history of a formidable woman who I'm a bit embarrassed to say as an anthropologist, I'd never heard of her, despite her being the first black woman to graduate with a social science degree from the very university where I currently teach anthropology. So, oh my goodness. I was hoping we could start off with you helping me situate Regina Gelana Twala. If you could give me a brief biographical overview of this formidable woman who's been written out from Endaleni to Eswatini via Johannesburg to Ghana. She's lived an impressive life. She has, she has lived an impressive life indeed. Yeah. So Twala was born in 1908. And as you mentioned, she was born in Indaleni, which was a, a Methodist mission station in rural KZN in South Africa. She was part of this small black Christian elite that scholars have written a lot about of early 20th century South Africa. She grew up really valuing education, literacy, even though she was a woman, she was determined to excel in those areas. She trained as a teacher at Adams College, also in KZN. And as, as you and I'm sure many of our listeners know, teaching was really the occupation for middle class black South African women of these decades. She taught for a while again at Indaleni, went back kind of as a graduate of the school and then became a teacher there. And it was there that she met her first husband, Percy Kumalo, who worked in Johannesburg as a clerk on one of the gold mines. So Twala moved with Percy to Johannesburg in the 1930s, but unfortunately their marriage very quickly fell apart. Percy was chronically unfaithful to her. And Twala, I think, showing the strength of character that would come to determine her for her whole life, was having none of it. So rather than just putting up with the philandering as what you should expect from a marriage, Twala put her foot down and said, no, I want a divorce. So she embarked upon the extremely difficult route of getting a divorce as a black woman in 1930s South Africa, which was not only bureaucratic, time consuming, was also very expensive. She eventually married to free herself from Percy and shortly after married her second husband, Dan Twala, who was, you know, at that point in their lives, I'd say more famous than, than Twala herself. He was the manager of an organization called the Bantu Sports Club in downtown Joburg. And he was really a kind of big personality in the city. Um, and Dan Twala was this very formative intellectual influence on Regina. He encouraged her writing. At this point, Regina had already started writing for newspapers in Johannesburg. Uh, he encouraged her authorial ambitions. She was working on a book manuscript. And he also supported her retraining as a social worker. So Regina was part of the pioneering generation of students in the Jan Hofmeyer School of Social Work in Johannesburg. Winnie Madikazela Mandela would graduate a few years later from there. And Twala was, was an intellectual. So while she enjoyed the course, she, she felt that rather than something solely practical and hands-on, she wanted theory. She wanted something rigorous. So she gained the distinction of being one of the very few black women at WITS in the 1940s. And in fact, when she graduated in 48, she was only the second black woman to ever graduate from the university and the first black woman to graduate with the social studies or social sciences degree, part of which included studies in, in anthropology. And we can come back to her role at WITS and 
also thinking about how Witz today is trying to memorialize a figure like Twala and really do her justice. So throughout the 40s and early 50s, she worked as a social worker in Johannesburg. But of course, 1948 is when the apartheid government was voted in and things became increasingly difficult for figures like the Twalas. Regina actually became quite politically active. She became involved in the ANC. And in 1952, she took part in the defiance campaign and was arrested during one of the protests in Germiston, the east of Johannesburg. And it was around this moment that her marriage to Dan Twala also began to fall apart, that, you know, he, he was not pleased with this more politically radical, politically involved wife. He felt that it was a big threat to the family's stability, to their finances. In addition, Dan, unfortunately, was pursuing relationships with, with other women. So by the mid-1950s, Regina had taken the decision to exile herself to Eswatini, partly, I think, because of her politics, but also partly because of the state of her marriage and realizing she wanted to live separately from Dan. Um, so the last 20 years of her life was spent in Eswatini, where her political career continued, but now under the auspices of the independence anti-colonial movement in Eswatini. She was instrumental in co-founding Eswatini's first political party, the Swaziland Progressive Party. And as you mentioned, under the umbrella of the party, she was the women's secretary. She traveled to Accra in Ghana, at big Pan-African meetings hosted by Kwame Nkrumah himself. And she continued her writing career. She was a prolific journalist for um, newspapers in Eswatini. In addition to her kind of anti-colonial pro-independence politics, she also became increasingly critical of the then monarch or paramount chief of Eswatini, Sabuza II. And one of the things I discuss in my book is how her kind of very subversive politics towards this kind of very revered, entrenched royal figure really is one of the main reasons why she's been written out of history in Eswatini. Because um, as you know, the monarchy in Eswatini is still as entrenched today as it was 60 years ago when Twala was alive. Um, and her criticism and her outspokenness about the monarchy did not make her friends in, in higher places. She died tragically early at the age of 60 in 1968, just one month before Eswatini gained its independence from Britain. She never lived to see it as an independent country. And very soon after her death, the, the little legacy that she'd managed to create was progressively eroded. And the situation is as it is today, where even yourself as an anthropologist with connections to bits, you have never heard of her. This is unfortunately the case I think across the region, people just do not know the name of Regina Galana Twala. Sure, sure. I mean, it's it's kind of mind blowing to consider that someone born, you know, at the start of the twentieth century, lived such an illustrious life that I think many people in my generation, at least, imagine was only possible. I guess for you know, those of us born post-1994 or raised post-1994. So it's incredible to actually have this book that you've written that gives us access to this incredible woman. I was hoping maybe you would share with us an extract from Written Out. No, super. I would love to share an extract. And the one I've chosen is actually a short passage that describes Regina beginning work on her first book, her first novel in the 1930s. Sadly, this is a novel that would never be published, and that's something we can maybe turn to later, thinking about how she wrote so much, but she never actually found formal publishers. Regina had aspired to write a novel since her Johannesburg days. Amidst her austere existence, the teacher at the remote Polella Institute near Bua, she made quick progress with her new project. She called the novel Gufa, titled after the male protagonist. Regina had correctly foreseen that away from Johannesburg, cinemas, jazz concerts and lectures, not to say her grindingly tired days as a domestic worker, she would progress with her book. As she wrote to her husband, Dan, when I am at Polella, I shall get a good environment for writing with no distraction. That is what I really like about college life. Her exile from Johannesburg was an opportunity for writing. I knew that if I waited, I would lose the swing of the thing. I was only on chapter one and there were 16 chapters waiting for me. In less than four months, August to December 1938, Regina produced nearly 20,000 words, holding to a strict daily writing schedule, 
that included two hours every evening after a long day of teaching. Regina peppered her letters to Dan Twaller with references to the beastly cold and freezing fingers barely able to hold a pen. She must have written in woolen socks and dressing gown for insulation from Natal's harsh winter, perhaps huddling in the hot water bottle she requested Dan urgently send her within hours of arriving at the school. These silent nights yielded an exceptionally productive period. Cold, isolation, and yearning for her lover did her writing good. Sometimes Regina was too exhausted after a day's teaching to muster the energy. I didn't feel in the mood at all tonight. I was just made cross by the kiddies. They were so insolent. At times like this, her novel was simply draining to her. But mostly, as Regina proudly confided to Dan, thoughts just flow out of me. Dan was delighted at her progress. In fact, ideas were so copious that Regina simultaneously worked on several books at the same time, although with varying intensity. Nonetheless, Gufa was her main project, and she found inspiration flowed as freely as water. This is an account of her writing she gave to Dan. The lines came to me any time, even when bathing just before bed. I would manage seven lines, then sponge myself. Then when I was having a wash, the rest just came flowing. I put down my face towel and sat down naked to scribble. I continued with my ablutions. Before I finished, something else came while I was drying myself. I rushed for the pen and I wrote. Such things come as a dream that can never be repeated. If you lose time about them, they go. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Firstly, I'm envious <laughs> that things flowed for her. Right. Um, <laughs> most of us when we're writing, we're like, just scrambling to put one word after the other. But it also speaks something really incredible to imagine this scholar, this writer, this intellectual simultaneously also working as a domestic worker, simultaneously also working as a teacher. I guess, you know, in the course of writing the book, you're a historian, a scholar, reading another scholar, anthropologist in a vastly different set of circumstances. And, you know, biographies of anthropologists do provide us some kind of anthropological data for anthropology, like Roger Lohman notes, there are studies of human agents enmeshed in social and cultural contexts comparable to histories of ethnographic participants. And so what I'd like us to think about is, well, you sharing your journey of coming to work on Twala's biography and maybe telling me a little bit about how this project helped you understand your own orientations and your own positionality and preoccupations as a scholar. Thanks, Nosipo. I, th- I think that's a really crucial point to, to think about my own positionality because, you know, one of the things that I've come to believe about biography is that it is not a straightforward transcription of someone's life, that the biographer, the person producing the narrative, um, has a great deal of editorial control over the story that they're choosing to tell about the person. So I think that there's a kind of moral responsibility or an ethical dimension to to really do um, justice to your positionality and the fact that you as the writer are are kind of actively shaping what the world knows about this figure. I think I did not plan to write this biography. I was doing some research for another book of mine, which was a history of the Zionist churches in Southern Africa. And in the process of researching that book, I was looking through the archives of a Swedish historian called Bengt Sunkler, who had been a missionary in South Africa in the 1940s and had written quite a bit on Zionism. So I thought that I would consult his papers in the Uppsala University Library in Sweden, where he'd spent most of his career, and try find you know the rich primary data that, um, as scholars, we, we kind of love. So I did find a lot of material on his archives, but I found something I wasn't expecting, and that was a whole collection of research notes, research material, that had been sent to Sunkla in the 1950s from someone based in Eswatini in Kualuseni on the outskirts of the, the country's second city, Manzini. And this person signed themselves off as R. Twala. They gave no indication of whether they were a man or a woman, what their position was, but they sent Sunkla pages and pages of notes on Zionist life in Eswatini in 1950s. I knew as soon as I read it that this was an exceptional person. This was someone who was anthropologically trained, They knew the literature of the day. They cited other scholars. They used um, footnotes to make these very erudite references to other works of scholarship. 
And just their knowledge and their, their sort of depth of ethnographic insight was really compelling. But I, I had never heard of this person. I'd never heard of someone called Artwala. So at that point, I was actually living in Eswatini and I started asking around, particularly people in Kualuseni, where the university is, um, University of Swaziland is there. And I still found just this kind of blank that no one had ever heard of this person, which, you know, I myself grew up in Eswatini. It's a small place. It's not an easy place to remain anonymous. So I really felt that something interesting was happening where such a kind of key intellectual was simultaneously forgotten. No one had known of them. I had my breakthrough um, quite soon when I spoke to someone who had actually attended church with Twala a long time ago. Twala was very involved in the Assemblies of God in Eswatini. And I described the person I was looking for. And this woman said, oh, you must mean Regina Twala. And this was the first time I'd realized that this was actually a woman and that she had a name. And then just kind of door after door unlocked. And I began to be introduced to family members and to get a sense of what her community had been. I think the other big breakthrough in the book was when I found nearly 1,000 letters that Regina had exchanged with her second husband, Dan Twala, from the 1930s to the 1960s. Um, in the 1970s, after Regina had died, the South African historian Tim Cousins had interviewed Dan Twala in connection with a book he was writing on, on black playwrights in South Africa. This book then became The New African. And Dan Twala, as well as his role in the sports club, was very involved in theatrics and acting in Johannesburg. Dan had given Tim Cousins his entire personal archive of letters um, that he exchanged with Regina. And Tim Cousins had kept these in his study. He died a few years ago, and his widow had these boxes of letters and wasn't really you know, sure what to do with them. And as soon as I started looking through them, she invited me to her house to page through them. I realized that, that I kind of hit gold, really, and that this was an absolute book-length biography of a very significant figure. And I think there have been so few figures in history let alone in South African history, who have left behind that kind of corpus of writing about themselves and letters about themselves. So I knew that her story was remarkable and I knew that she left behind the material with which to tell the story. And I knew that, that I had to write it. It was just kind of a sense of this has been given to me. I, I, have, to, I have to do it. Um, and just kind of one quick thought about positionality. You know, obviously, I am a white scholar. I'm a white historian. I'm based in the North. Um, my, my institution is, is Stanford in the U.S. And throughout Regina Twala's whole life, she had a series of very negative, um, very kind of extractive, exploitive relationships, particularly with white academics. So thanks, Sunkla, the Swedish historian who I mentioned, he actually plagiarized her work. These research notes that she sent to him in the 1950s 20 years later, he would publish them in his own work, passing it off as his own with no recognition or acknowledgement of her work. Hilda Cooper, the very famous South African anthropologist, was Regina's teacher at Witz and then her mentor in later years. Cooper turned against Twala. She disliked her politics. She thought she was too radical. I think there was a bit of territorialism and professional jealousy. And Cooper actually blocked Regina from publishing her final work, an ethnographic study of, of sweaty women. So I kind of came to the project knowing that this was a South African intellectual who had been bruised, who had been misused, mistreated by white academics. And yet here I was again as another white academic trying to tell a much more positive story about Regina and trying to you know, be much more respectful of her legacy and of her stature. But at the same time, unable to, you know, escape these very painful dynamics of race, of class, of privilege and of power. Um, so one of the ways that I think about this is that, for me, the, the ultimate goal in telling Regina Twala's story is not just, you know, yet another book by a white academic about a black South African woman, but rather that Regina Twala's words finally find an audience in their own right. So she wrote prolifically, but she never published for many complicated reasons to do with racism and sexism. But those words are still there. And I feel that the goal should be for Twala's writing to finally find a publisher in its own right and for her to speak to the world in her own voice rather than through the voice of yet another white academic who's kind of mediating mm. her reputation. It's time for her to speak for herself. Mm. 
And and how do you think working on this project shaped your orientation as a scholar? Were these questions that had kind of been percolating for you, thinking about historical research, especially of the region? Or was there something unique about this particular project um, that foregrounded those those issues? You know, I think it's both. I don't think it's either or. I think it's yes and. I had certainly been thinking a lot about these kinds of issues. I think it's hard to be a white scholar in African studies right now and not be thinking about these issues, particularly African studies as it is in the US, which has historically been very white dominated. And I think you kind of have to ask yourself hard questions about sort of that state of affairs and your own kind of role in it. So I, I was already thinking about this before I came across Twala, but I think there is something about biography. There's something about being confronted with a person, just with this very personal, intimate story, particularly through her letters, her love letters. You know, this is not this is not theoretical. This is not abstract. This is her life. This is her, you know, these are her dreams, her hopes, her despair, her sorrow. It makes everything just incredibly close to home, personal and intimate, so that they're no longer just kind of theoretical questions. Twala was a woman who was, you know, hurt, who was damaged, who was misused by an oppressive system. So I, th- I think it brings all of those questions so much closer to home to think about it through the lens of biography. Sure. You know, as, as I was reading your book, there were so many things that I identified with and I think it's very tempting to try and speak of Regina's legacy as a legacy for all women written out, because I'm like, I too, Regina, I too, I feel this pain. You know, this kind of like putative sisterhood born of shared struggle against all the structural violence of patriarchy, of misogynoir. Yet, you know, some of the gatekeepers, as you rightfully mention, um, of her scholarly work, of her archive, have also been women, have also been fellow scholars who exploited her work. And I think I want us to maybe shift to think about the legacy of her work as it relates to her family, because I want to talk a little bit about how her children, her grandchildren, and other people maybe she was in supportive community with, how they understand her legacy. I was particularly struck by your description of Pinoki Gelane Twala, who herself is a healer, and when she told you that Regina selected you to be her biographer, And so I'd like you to tell us about how her family is making sense of this vast archive of her writing, hidden not only from, you know, contemporary public, but from her own family, you know, like their own history has been in someone's basement. How are they making sense of this project and the significance of putting this book together for their family? I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, you can write biographies of figures who lived 500 years ago, or you can write biographies of figures who lived 50 years ago. And in the latter case, you have to deal with the family. These are not figures who've been gone from the earth for a very long time. There are people who know them, their children, their grandchildren, their communities that remember them. So the kind of ethical obligation of the biographer extends not only to the person who you're writing about, but I think also to the living descendants of the person you're writing about. And Pinocchi, Regina's granddaughter, has been, you know, consistently a huge support and encouragement in this project. You know, none of this could have gone forward or happened without her. She is Regina's heir. You know, it's to her that I've looked for permission to tell the story, to make use of the letters that Regina has left behind, to make use of Regina's other writings. And I think for for her and for other extended family members, um, Regina only had one son who tragically died in a car crash in the 70s. He then only had one daughter, Pinocchi. So Pinocchi is it in terms of biological descendants of Regina. It's just one, one grandchild. But there are other extended family members. I think for Pinocchi and the family, the biography is a kind of a, a mode of vindication, if you like the sense that they've long known as a family that their grandmother was exceptional. You know, they have kept that memory alive in family memory, in family kind of law. But the recognition has not happened kind of at a wider level, at the national level, at the public level. So I think they see the biography as a way to finally bring their grandmother's name to some kind of wider attention, wider visibility. You mentioned that Pinocchi is a healer. She's a trained sangoma. And she communes regularly with her grandmother through dreams, through visions, through other kinds of experiences. 
And Pinocchi's feeling on this is that her grandmother is very supportive of the biography and that she actually, as you mentioned, selected me to be her biographer. So posthumously, beyond the grave, Regina is still seeking ways to make her voice heard, to find a public for her words that she was unable to find during her lifetime. And I, I think that's one of the ways that, that the family are making sense of it. But I should also say it, it's kind of sensitive. You know, as I argue in my book, one of the reasons why Regina was erased is because her politics were so subversive, particularly in the context of Eswatini and the monarchy. So we have plans to launch the book in Eswatini in a few months' time, July, August. And one of the questions facing us is, what does it mean to launch a book in a country that is still as politically repressive as it was in the 1960s when Twala was writing? Are the current powers that be in Eswatini really going to welcome a sort of celebration of the life of a woman who co-founded the first political party of the country in a context where political parties are still banned in Eswatini since the early 1970s, in a context where the power of the monarchy is as entrenched, more entrenched even, than it was during her lifetime. So I, I live in the US. I certainly don't want to endanger or kind of put into any kind of threat or difficulty Twala's family in Eswatini. So it's tricky. Memorializing Twala now still means coming up against those forces that contributed to her erasure during her lifetime. It's, I feel like the world is still not actually quite ready for, for her and for who she was. Mm. Yo. I mean, yeah, raising the issue of, you know, the contemporary situation, Eswatini, is one element that is difficult, I think, for many South Africans to grapple with, that our neighbours right next door, there's still, you know, a context where it is a monarchy and not full participation in democratic processes. And I think alongside that, <laughs> yo, your project was moving at 100 hybels an hour, <laughs> because at the same time, You've got the context of Eswatini, and then you've also got the context of these legal copyright ownership kind of processes that impact the family in terms of who actually gets to own her archive. Is it the people who kept her work in the basement? You know, love letters between your grandparents being owned by someone else. How did you find navigating those processes around ownership of her story? Yeah. So I went to a lawyer, you know, I just thought, I just thought I'm out of my depth here. You know, I am a historian. I don't know anything about copyright law. Um, so I actually um, worked with a, a lawyer, an attorney in Eswatini, who, who did a great deal of amazing research into the family, into copyright law, and came up with a legal opinion that determined that Pinocchio Twala um, was the sole heir of, of Regina's entire estate. I mean, th this was very complicated. And, and as you say, not least the issue of, you know, these precious personal items of the family, the love letters of their grandparents, which, you know, I have to say are very personal. I mean, some of them have intimate sexual details of things that pass between their grandparents. You know, th th these are absolutely private family documents. That the first time the family had ever heard of them is when I told them that they existed in a Johannesburg poem, in the study of someone they'd never heard of. So I, th I think there's this kind of story of loss, really, that this family treasure has been kept away from them for so many years, and that there's been very little recognition of the fact that this is a family possession, this belongs to the family. And I, I think maybe this goes back to the kind of extractive dynamics around academics, where we take material that we only see as primary source material or data from people without realizing these objects, this material has other meaning for the people and the families and the communities from which it comes. So there's definitely a sort of ethical dimension with that. I think in the case of Regina Twala, it was also complicated because, you know, she died still married to Dan Twala, although they lived separately. So one of the things that I was trying to work out is you know, if a woman dies still married, does her estate pass to her husband, in which case to Dan, and because he is deceased now to Dan's children, or does it go, you know, through her line of descent to her grandchild? Um, Dan Twala actually had many children, and so there's an extremely large extended family. It's 
It's one of the most well-known South African acting families. So Mary Twala, the actress who recently died, was another daughter of Dan's. In fact, she was raised sure. by Regina and Eswatini throughout the 1950s and 60s. So Mizi Twala is Mary's son. So that would make him, let me see, Regina's kind of grandson as well, I guess. One removed, if that makes sense. Shadow Twala, the radio presenter, is another of Dan Twala's daughters. So there's an extremely kind of prominent, well-connected family in South Africa um, on more of Dan Twala's side. But but ultimately, the legal opinion of, of the attorney that I worked with in Eswatini is that it, it goes to Regina's biological descendant, who is her granddaughter, Pinoki Twala, and that Pinoki has ownership to, to manage the legacy of her grandmother in whatever way she sees fit. Sure. I'm really hoping, and I mean, you mentioned in the book that this biography is to kind of correct the record of her being written out, but also for us to maybe get access to her work. You mentioned, you know, efforts maybe to consider around her work being accessible online, but that also opens up a whole other can of worms, right? About, you know, accessing this primary material in a way that I guess we would read as free, but might not necessarily be easily accessible to members of her immediate family. Yeah. And I think these are like these interesting questions that we're having to grapple with in terms of archiving in the 21st century, that the internet, so many possibilities, but also how are issues of access and ownership negotiated when things are online? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the letters have now been deposited at WITS in WITS Historical Papers, which is the university's archives which I think is very fitting given that Witz was Regina's own alma mater. Her family are very in support of that. They, you know, they've given permission for the letters to be deposited. Although these are private family possessions, they are also, they recognize an incredibly valuable resource for the scholarly community at large. And they want people to be able to use these letters. You know, they want people to be able to go in the archives and consult letters Actually, not just only for Regina Twala's story, but just the light that they shed onto so many key moments of South African history of the last century. I mean, Regina was close personal friends of the Mandelas. She was walking in kind of the higher circles of the ANC. So scholars can go back to these letters for, for insight into a whole range of topics. And the family have been incredibly generous about that. They want to kind of make this gift to, to the public. But there's also this issue of of privacy. You know, what do you do with letters that have these kind of more intimate details? Do you open those to the public? Do you keep those closed? And then also access. How do you make sure that the the letters are easily accessible to the widest kind of stretch of the public? We are actually digitizing the letters and photographs. I, I shouldn't leave out the photographs. There are Dozens and dozens and dozens of amazing black and white photographs that were her and Dan Twala's kind of personal photo album from the 1930s to the 1960s that just give this incredible glimpse into ordinary everyday life under apartheid in ways that I think are very powerful and and actually not all that well known. So we are digitizing the letters, we are digitizing the photographs with the hopes that ultimately this will be open access to researchers. But, you know, in a region of the world like Southern Africa, not everyone is connected to the Internet or has sufficient access to affordable data to be downloading big documents, big images. So that's kind of an ongoing question, you know, how to make this open in the most kind of egalitarian, affordable way for for the most amount of people, rather than making an archive that's kind of locked away, closed to only researchers who have the means to either travel in person to view the letters or to access, you know, expensive data to 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 view the images down online. Sure. Oh, yo, Regina, she lived her life. <laughs> she, <laughs> she lived her life. I think. I think we 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 often um, not only you know to use Jacob Lamini's phrasing of you know native nostalgia, and not to have any kind of like nostalgia for apartheid, but I do think a lot of our educational imaginary around what everyday life during apartheid was, especially, you know, 1940s up till the 60s, I struggle to imagine what an everyday life might have looked like. And to have access to letters, to photographs, to 
an ethnographer writing her life, but also writing the lives around her is just such an incredible resource because I think it's very easy for us to slip into the official narratives of our our historiography, both from the apartheid state and the post-apartheid state, and to have an independent scholar being able to articulate what life was like, it's just, it's absolutely mind-blowing that this stuff was in someone's basement. Yeah, it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge privilege to tell her story. And I think what's so kind of multifaceted about it is that the struggle was there. You know, she was in the ANC, she was kind of marching during the defiance campaign and so on. But that wasn't all of her life. That wasn't kind of what defined her entirely. She was also falling in love. She was also trying to write a book. She was also trying to get pregnant. You know, she struggled with her fertility for years and years. And the letters about that are just this fascinating insight into fertility options for for women who were struggling with conception in 1940s Africa. I mean, when do we ever read about that? That's just kind of, you know, a magical insight into the everyday experience of women. So I think to reduce women to their political roles and to reduce South African history to the story of the struggle against apartheid are both overly reductive. And I think the beauty and the the gift of these letters is they invite us to consider women like Regina in all of her kind of complex, messy, multifaceted glory, that she was a mother, a wife, a scholar, a writer, an intellectual, an activist, a churchgoer, she was profoundly religious, and that all of these identities and aspects of her her personality need to be kind of held in tension together. And that's what Mm -hmm. makes writing her biography such a challenge, as well as, you know, I hope ultimately something rewarding for for people to read about. I want us to maybe turn to talking about Regina as a writer. Um, you know, she has six book manuscripts, is that correct? Well, I, I've been able to find evidence of as many as five. The problem is that due to not publishing them during her life, all but one of them has been lost to us. I know that she was writing them through her mention of these books in letters to Dan Twala. But unfortunately, you know, as so often happens with kind of personal papers that unless you have someone who's really kind of on it with preserving things, you know, unfortunately, things just get mislaid, misplaced, lost. So we only have one complete manuscript left of Regina, which is has a very sad story, because, again, I found it in the kind of archives or the papers of a white academic. This happened when I was going through the archives of the anthropologist Hilda Cooper at UCLA Library um, in Los Angeles in the US. And I found amidst all of Cooper's papers, a folder entitled R. Twala. I opened it up and there was an over 100 page manuscript written by Regina in the last few years of her life. On Regina's deathbed, as she was dying of cancer in 1968, she was sending it around frantically trying to find a publisher for it. Soon after she died, um, someone who was very close to Regina, a writer and historian called um, John Matsubula, he then forwarded it to Hilda Cooper in UCLA in the States. He said, "Um, Professor Cooper, I know that Mrs. Twala was your student at Wits. I know that you mentored her and advised her. She's written this final manuscript. Can you help publish it? That was her, her dying wish. That was her deathbed wish. Cooper blocked publication. She looked at the manuscript. She wrote back to Matsubula. She said, there's nothing of interest here. This is intellectually devoid of value. No. And then she sat on the manuscript for the rest of her life. She died in the 1990s. And when her papers passed into the possession of the UCLA library, Twala's manuscript was enfolded within her papers. So part of my book sort of goes into this and thinks about what was at stake. Why would a figure like Cooper deliberately block or squash the reputation of a scholar like Twala. And I think there were many reasons. I think it was different politics between the two women. And I think Cooper was was jealous. I think she enjoyed her status as the anthropologist of Eswatini. And she didn't appreciate a politically radical, outspoken black scholar challenging her dominance. So to me, it sort of seems like a very sad parallel or mirroring of what we see with the letters being in the study of you know, a historian of Johannesburg, that now Twala's final manuscript is also kind of being silenced through being folded into the archives of, of another scholar, a white scholar. 
So that manuscript has been found. I have a copy of it, and my goal is to find a publisher for that manuscript. I don't know if you know that there are two South African scholars, Makosa Zana Chaba and Atumbila Masola, and they have just published, yes. Um, <laughs> snap! snap. <laughs> for our listeners, the glee that you heard from Joel and I was because we are both holding our copies of A Stranger at a Home that was put together by Makosa Zanakaba and Atambila Masola. They have just published the newspaper columns of the South African writer Noni Jababu in a beautiful, wonderful book um, brought up by Tafelberg. And that gives me hope that, you know, we can return to the legacies of these, these female intellectuals who were not published during their lifetime or who only managed to publish in newspapers. And I think Noni Jababu's story is very similar to Regina Twala, and I think many South African women of the period, which is finding an actual publisher, someone willing to bring out your pages in hard copy between a front and a back cover, was very challenging. So newspapers offered this much more kind of egalitarian, democratic platform for bringing your work into the world. For one, it's free. No one, you don't have to pay. There's no cost involved. I mean, obviously, there's the cost of producing the newspaper. But compared to the cost of producing, you know, a thousand copies of a book, it's insignificant. So I think the story of of black female writers in the 20th century really needs to be found in the pages of newspapers. This is where Mm. we find literary energy, creativity, experimentation like Kaba and Masolas, which is going back to those newspapers and kind of extracting those writings and finally bringing them out and giving them prominence in book form, I think it's very inspirational. And it's it's something that I think should absolutely happen for Twala, both with regard mm-hmm. to her newspaper columns, which are hundreds in South African and Swati newspapers, but also with regard to this final unpublished um, ethnographic manuscript on Swati women. Mm. And, and how do you characterize her scholarly and intellectual preoccupations? How do you see her work relating to the intellectual and political traditions of the time, how her column in Dombazana, mm. in the times of Swaziland, merges, I guess, with also her anthropological training? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just amazing to look at, you know, a, a 60-year-old career and kind of map the changes and the transformations that she went through. And as an anthropologist, I think you'll kind of appreciate and enjoy this, which is, you know, in in her earlier life, she was much more sort of conventional. She was much more interested in this kind of quite static notion of tradition and culture. And, um, you know, she spoke about the tribe and so on. But then throughout the 50s and 60s, as she lived in Eswatini, as she saw firsthand how the so-called kind of traditional system could work you know, not only for good, but also for bad, in terms particularly of how it oppressed women in Eswatini, she became increasingly critical of the idea of tradition and culture. She appreciated it, but she also saw ways in which it could be weaponized by patriarchs to keep kind of women under the thumb in their place. So her, her later writings as in Tombazana in the times of Swaziland in the 50s and 60s are just kind of incredibly creative and playful with tradition. So one of the things that Twala was interested in her whole life that I can trace from her newspaper writings from the 30s all the way through to the 60s is an interest in fashion, in dress, in the clothes that women wore. So by the 1960s, a few years before her death, she's writing columns for the Times of Swaziland that talk about the fashions that Swati women were wearing. And she was kind of reveling in this sort of hybrid, eclectic, mingling of old and new Swati and European or Western. She talks about the Inkwala, you know, the annual ceremony that still happens every December. She talks about what Swati women wore to that. And she talks about women who wear the traditional black skin hide, heavy skirts. She talks about women who are wearing the latest in Paris fashions. She talks about women who are wearing fake leopard skin along with beadwork. So I think for her, fashion and women's clothing became this prism through which she saw tradition as this incredibly kind of movable object, that it's not static. There's no Swati culture as it's been since time immemorial. There's only creative redefinitions of it that are going on all the time. 
And, you know, as exciting as that sounds to us as anthropologists, I think that kind of message could be read as very threatening by political authorities like the Swati King, who are precisely trying to root down and kind of codify Swati tradition, and particularly the rule of the monarchy as natural. That's the way things have been since the beginning of time. That's the way things will always be. So, yeah, just very, very playful and experimental is one way in which I define her anthropological work, which for someone like Cooper, I think is also threatening because Hilda Cooper was much more sort of reverential towards tradition and custom, the way things always have been. And I think this, this mm. was felt as quite subversive um, by Twala. Sure. You know, reading your book, and I'm so glad you brought up the Jababu text because I was thinking about it. I attended the launch in Johannesburg and I was like, ooh, so many delicious things to bring into our conversation. But I was struck by how Regina Twala's life contrasts with other biographies of South African women and women of African descent. I'm thinking particularly of Aba and Masola's new book, Stranger at Home, about Nonu Jabavu. I'm also thinking about Henrietta Lacks, and I'm thinking of Sarah Batman, women whose stories have come to stand in for a structural position. And as I'm reading your book, I'm considering Sadia Hatman's work in Wayward Lives, where she works with historically fraught and incomplete archival records um, that often overdetermine Black women's histories and how Hatman is not satisfied with reducing the stories of Black women into neat archetypes. You know, someone like Regina cannot just be reduced to only her role as mother or her role as churchgoer or her role as politician or, or her role as... She's all of these, you know, multifaceted things. You know, unlike Lax or Batman and the unnamed woman in Hatman's work, Jabavu and Twala wrote extensively about matters of interest to them and about their own lives. And yet Jabavu and Utwala in different ways, seem to become both the exception and the rule. How Twala was part of a minority of women who were granted the status of being able to own property, you know, something that was only allowed for white women under British colonial state. And also she was maligned in the national historiography, despite her prominent role in politics. So she's invisibilized and yet she's prominent. She's prolific, but rendered kind of her work insignificant She's the exception and the rule. I just, I'd love to hear you speak on that a little bit about mm. how she straddles these contradictions. What do you make of the fact that she kind of confirms this assumptive logic about the place of Black women in history and then also in so many ways she defies it? Wow, that's just a really deep, thought-provoking way of seeing someone like Twala as the exception and the rule as both kind of embodying the contradictions of what it meant to be a black woman, as well as sort of charting, you know, sort of conforming to expectations. This is actually something I was talking about with Atamila Masola, because, you know, we, we were discussing this issue of what did it mean to be an elite black woman in South Africa in the 20th century? And undoubtedly, figures like Twala, like Noni Jabavu, they were elite. You know, Twala was one of very few educated black women in South Africa in the early 20th century. As I mentioned, she was only the second black woman to graduate from university. She was minority of the minority. She owned property. You know, her, she was relatively well off in comparison to other black women of, of her age. But I think it says something about how fragile and how precarious middle class elite status was for black women in a place like South Africa during apartheid that you could be in the top 1% in terms of your education, your qualifications, your talents. But at the end of the day, your race rendered you as vulnerable as if you had nothing. And I think that for me is the kind of contradiction and tragedy that all of the aspiration, all of the hopes and ambitions of women of her class, at the end of the day, you were ultimately just relegated or defined in terms of your, your race. I think it also speaks to the mismatch between education, ambition, aspiration, and material possessions, which is that financial insecurity, I think, dogged her throughout her life, that as talented as she was, and, you know, this is why she ended up working as a research assistant for the Swedish academic. She needed the money. As talented as she was, she was always worrying about bills and how to make ends meet and where the rent for the next month was coming from and so on. So intellectuals and elites like her and, and Noni Jabavu, had she stayed in South Africa, they didn't have this bedrock of material 
financial stability to, upon which to build. You know, they had all the talent, all the hopes, but none of the safety nets to hold them when life got hard, as obviously it always does. And, you know, we mentioned the fact that Twala briefly worked as, as a domestic worker in a white, white home in Johannesburg in the 1930s. And I think that really exemplifies the kind of paradoxes you're talking about. One of South Africa's most highly educated women, someone who's just won these really prestigious literary prizes in the UK, is now, you know, on her hands and knees scrubbing floors. And just what a kind of painful feeling that was for someone like Twala. And not through any sort of scorn or kind of mocking of this profession. You know, Twala's own mother was a domestic worker. She had a lot of respect and empathy for what women went through. Um, but just the, the kind of painful mismatch between her ambition and the reality of her life in South Africa, I, I think is, is kind of very painful, very, very sad. Mm. In your book, you're very careful in detailing the story of erasure and silencing of Regina. And you quote Michel Rolf Triou when he says, you know, presences and absences are neither neutral or natural. They are created. One silence is a fact or an individual as a silencer. Silence is a gun. And I found that quote so deeply powerful when I read that. And, you know, when I was reading your reflections about telling Regina's story, I thought, you know, ooh, what am I going to get in this book? I was like, is this going to be a story of triumph over adversity? And you're quite good in kind of stopping me as a reader and going, no, 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 no. And you you challenge me to stay with the trouble, right? You, you challenge me to to pay attention to the matters of precarity, the matters of vulnerability, and not just simply leap into hope because that's what we want. We watch hidden figures and we're like, but eventually they're going to launch the rocket and eventually we're going to know of them as these amazing scientists. And so I just, I wanted you to speak a little bit to this issue of ethical accountability, of foregrounding vulnerability, of foregrounding the things that might be difficult to hold, which I didn't want to hold them. I was like, no, I want there to be a happy ending. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I think I, we all want the happy ending, right? And I guess the first thing to say is that to me, it's a really tricky balancing act between, you know, celebrating someone as a heroine versus diminishing them as a victim. And I actually wanted to do neither of those things. I don't see Twala as a heroine ultimately, because I think she was so profoundly failed by the structures, institutions, people of her day, that it's hard to see this as kind of a story of triumph, of, you know, overcoming the odds. She didn't overcome the odds. You know, in many ways, she died as a failure. She didn't achieve many of the things that she wanted to do with her life. But at the same time, I, I don't want this to be a story of, of victimhood. You know, I think Twala wouldn't have wanted to see herself as a victim. I think she didn't feel a victim. And I don't think victims try and persist and struggle as incessantly as a woman like Regina Twala did. So I think what I'm left with is this very kind of uncomfortable, gray, nuanced zone between triumph and victimhood and just thinking about the reality of a woman who was strong, who was formidable, who was determined, who was stubborn, who was talented, but at the same time was repeatedly let down. You know, when I wrote the chapter about her trying to publish her first book, in my first draft of the chapter, I called it Failure because it's a story of failure, how she went from publisher to publisher trying to find someone. No one took her on. But then for my second draft, I renamed it Failed because I thought that was a much more accurate rendition of what had happened. So I think it's just this idea of, you know, finding new ways to talk about women whom history has failed in ways that don't either relegate them to victims or sort of make them out to be these kind of unrealistic figures who triumphed against the odds. Because I feel to turn them into kind of happy stories doesn't quite do justice to the reality of the oppressive forces that they had to encounter and also the fact that those oppressive forces are still with us mm. today that these are not stories about a history that's kind of gone and long, long disappeared. You know, women are still struggling in South Africa and around the world to make themselves heard. Oppressive political systems are still at play, not only in each of our respective countries, but across the world. So 
I, I think these stories of heroism and triumph can sort of be deceptive in that they encourage us to take our eye off the ball. And instead of thinking about justice and improving things, we kind of celebrate these individuals who managed to beat the odds. Yes, those stories are amazing, but I'd much rather think about the structures that made their lives so difficult in the first mm. place and what our responsibility is as scholars, intellectuals, activists to do better for future generations. I think that was such an important intervention you make in your book about that ethical accountability. It's difficult. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Winnie Matigizela Mandela, but I, my life will not match hers just by virtue of how I'm located in history, but also because my temperament is not the same. And I think it's really reassuring and there is hope in that too, that there is a woman who comes from quite ordinary circumstances, I guess, who does these extraordinary things against the odds. The odds still live with us. And to be able to hold these things intention but also with a degree of kind of sobriety about where we are mm. it was really beautiful i think your your reflection on on that ethics of accountability thank you so i think we are now at that part of the episode mm. where we are going to engage with our dedication mm-hmm. and i just want to say thank you for making time to talk to me today about your new book. Are you doing an official launch in Johannesburg? Yeah, we will do something. So the South, South African Africa. edition is coming out now, basically. So we will do something in July in Johannesburg as well as in Cape Town. So yeah, we'll be in touch, definitely. I'm really looking forward. And I can't wait for more people to, to be able to engage with Regina Twala's legacy. I'd like to invite you now to help me in sending a message of solidarity to Sama Al-Shahab. Salma is a mother of two children. She was sentenced to 34 years in prison with subsequent 34-year travel ban for the crime of using Twitter in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Salma Al-Shahab, a Saudi national, is also a PhD student at Leeds University, and she was charged with following and retweeting so-called dissidents and actors in support of prisoners of conscience, of women's rights, people who are defending women's rights, And in October last year, Penn International and other human rights organizations called on the UK Foreign Secretary to act in the case of Salma. And I just wanted to say that today we stand with Salma and she is in the third chair with us in the room today, even though we're communicating across space and time. And I'd like to invite you to share your tribute to her. Thank you, Nasipo. And it was such a wonderful opportunity to learn more about Salma Al-Shahab and her career and the extraordinary circumstances that she finds herself in now. And to really also just see the the solidarity between her and Regina Twala, who, you know, in a way is another empty chair because she's no longer with us. But Twala was also imprisoned. Um, Twala was also separated from her child during her imprisonment. And I, I think that Twala kind of also stands from beyond the grave in solidarity. I wanted to read a, a poem that I love by the... British Pakistani poet Imtiaz Dhaka. And it's a poem about geography, about borders, about the borders that political authorities draw, and then the ways that human relationships, human bonds challenge those political borders and invite us into a more global solidarity. Whether it's Eswatini, South Africa, the US, Saudi Arabia, or the UK, we all stand with you, Salma and are praying and hoping for your release and your reunion with your family. So here's the short poem that I'll read. It's called When the Copper Plate Cracks by Imtiaz Dhaka. So this is how it is done, one hand inching round the coast to map its ins and outs, to mark the point where ink may kiss the river's mouth, or blade make up a terra incognita, an imagined south. This is where the needle turns to seek a latitude, where acid bites the naked shore and strips the sea till it is nothing more than metallic light. The lived terrain comes face to face with its mirror image on the page. The world made up and made again from sheets of ore, slept in, loved in, tumbled, turned until the copper buckles. You see it clearly in the print, 
the place where metal has been wounded, mended, where the hand attempts to heal the break line in the heart. Oof. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. I think this has been definitely a transatlantic conversation because I've chosen a poet as well. And it comes from Solmaz Sharif's 2022 collection of poems, Customs, my favorite <laughs> uh, poetry book at the moment. And I'm going to read part of her poem, And Otherwise. Downwind from a British petroleum refinery, my mother is removing the books she has ordered to remove from the school library. Russians mostly. Gorky's mother among them. The Shah is coming to our school. It is winter. In the cold, the schoolgirls line up along the front of the main building and wait for his motorcade. Knee highs and pleated skirts shivering in the refined air. Wave, girls, the teacher says. My mother, waving. When I was a small child, I think about five or six. Greatness didn't touch me. Lifted her hems walking through my hall. A set of colorful magnets made an incomplete alphabet. Gouges in the chalkboard on my lap, chalkless. Someone put it there and closed the door to answer the phone. The news came, terrific. Someone howling, no. The news was greatness. Beautiful, thanks for sharing. And hard, Mm. beautiful and hard. Very hard. Thank you, Joel. It has been an absolute pleasure being in conversation with you this evening. And yeah, I can't wait for the book to come out in South Africa. Thank you for doing this work. Thank you so much. And thank you for being such a wonderful conversation and and thought partner and to kind of think with me together about some of these incredibly important topics and this incredibly important women. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Joel and Nosipo for this mesmerizing and crucial exchange and for sharing your meticulous research and insistence on justice for Regina Gelana Twala. This episode was produced by Andre Bennett. Thanks to our executive producer, Lara Buxbaum, to PNSA board members, Nadia Davids, Yawande Omotoso, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of PIN South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Molaudzi and Jahan Jones Radkowski for their support. Join us again for a new episode of Season 7 of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.